Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoon. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 183 with the amazing Jamie Pendleton. You're going to hear about her in a second. It is the holiday season. Happy holidays, everybody. Uh, It's a different kind of holiday season than we're used to. Hunkered down, stuck in our homes with our immediate families. (laughs) But, But we're making it through, aren't we? Uh, The DeBooms are spending our holidays here in our new home in Steamboat Springs. So while many people feel like they are stuck and they just wish they could get away, we kind of feel like we're on vacation. So I'm, I'm just putting that out there because even if you feel stuck and you wish you could get away, I invite you to pretend you are visiting your home And to pretend you've been away from your immediate family for a long time and you're just seeing them. And try to approach this holiday season like a vacation. I know it's tough and that is definitely probably not going to help a lot of you. but, uh, But hey, we have to use every trick in the book when times get tough. And I'm hoping that this podcast is one of the tricks in your book. So another cool thing is I have actually been inspired to start sending out some emails. So join my email list. You can go over to NicoleDeBoom.com join it because I've decided that I am going to work on providing some insight into the more vulnerable parts of myself. And over the holidays, we often face some of our most difficult challenges. And I decided I'm going to write an email about my drinking journey. So if any of you are interested in getting to know me a little bit better, yeah, I've got some some tough sides to myself as well. So get over to NicoleDeBoom.com, join my email list. And uh, I don't know, I write emails when I get inspired. It's not on any set schedule at this point. But another cool thing is that while I have been taking time off from real life, while I have been not working per se, (laughs) just sort of been living, um, I'm starting to get some ideas. And a couple cool things are happening. The first of which is that I've got some ideas for a new podcast. And uh, three to be exact, but two of them are going to come sooner than the other. So keep your eyes on the social media channels, um, more information on new podcasts coming soon, and your opportunity to potentially be a guest on, on some of this new fun content that I plan to put out. So today, today you are in for a treat. Um, it's a treat because it's going to give you today's conversation is going to give you inspiration, perspective, and it is going to dig deeply into your heartstrings because this woman's story is deep and it's urgent 
There is a need in the moment for Jamie to do something big. So I met Jamie Pendleton actually through my husband, Tim. She was looking for a coach to give her some structure and confidence for her next big running goal, which was to break three hours at the New York Marathon. And, you know, when Tim started working with her, I thought, you know, she's just another driven athlete who needs accountability like most of Tim's clients. But I was wrong. I had no idea that what was driving Jamie was so much deeper. See, she runs and has been running for much of her life for so much more than the goals and structure. She runs for her sanity. She runs for stress relief. And in the end, she runs for her daughter. Her daughter, Mirren, was born with a rare disease that affects pretty much every function in her body. The problem is that it took six years for them to get an actual diagnosis. They knew something was wrong basically at birth, but it took six years for them to find out what actually was wrong so that then they could try to solve it. And during that brutal time of uncertainty, Jamie's marriage fell apart. She battled depression and suicidal thoughts. She felt shame and guilt. And ultimately, she just wondered how she could ever find a cure to save her daughter. So Mirren has what's, I think, pronounced cacnea. It's C-A-C-N-A-1-A. And it's a rare disease that affects the body's ability to process calcium. It's either too much or too little. And you're going to hear about that today. But she has difficulty speaking, thinking, moving like her peers. Um, Children with, with this disorder, they present much differently than other children. But many express the same neurological symptoms like seizures, Um, something called episodic ataxia, eye abnormalities, all kinds of, all kinds of things that as a parent of a young child are brutal to watch happening. So Jamie is on a mission to raise money to find a cure for Mirren. That means for Jamie coming out of her shell, leaving her introverted comfort zone and doing everything she can to advocate for her daughter. Those of you listening who advocate for someone in your lives, you know what this means. This is the stuff. This is the real deep stuff that drives us every day. And because rare diseases are simply that, they're rare, the medical community does not prioritize them. So it's not like, oh, we'll just go find out what they're doing and get it done. Like they actually have to come up with a cure. They either may have to develop one or the first step Jamie's going to take is they like process through a huge database all the different treatments and drugs drugs that they have already created for other diseases and disorders and maybe one of them will be a match. So she's starting by raising $250,000 to run the test to see if there's a match. And hopefully there will be. And that will be maybe the end of it. Probably not. But you never know. So I've donated. I encourage you guys to donate if if you feel it within you and uh, you have the means to do so. And if nothing else, I want you to share this episode because it's 
important. And like I said, it's urgent. You know, Mirren doesn't have forever. <laughs> Jamie doesn't have forever. Um, okay, so we're going to get to the conversation in just a second, but let me just tell you, we had some connection issues. Our house is long, and <laughs> I we got to get a Wi-Fi extender over here in the DeBoom household. Um, I did figure out that Wilder's Playroom is a good place to record, so that's my stopgap. But today's episode does have some little gaps and warbles and do your best, hang in there. And if, if she, you know, Jamie or I go out for a second, I promise you, we come right back in. Um, so thank you for your patience. Uh, it doesn't, I don't think it changes the quality of the conversation or the episode. Just uh, asking for a little patience today. And then the other cool thing is that I just changed podcast hosts and they offer a service for ads. So as you know, I don't have a job right now, so I'm I'm just kind of exploring other ways that I might be able to make some money. So you may hear, I'm, I'm exploring this because there may be an ad in this episode <laughs> and uh, it won't be my voice and it may sound kind of strange to you, but I'm only accepting ads that align with the kind of products and services that you know, are important to me and that I believe in. And I will never accept an ad or an advertiser to come on board my podcast um, if they make a product or service that I don't believe in. So there you go. If you hear an ad, don't worry. Don't be like, oh my God, Nicole, there's this weird guy's voice on your podcast for like 30 seconds. Um, those are all approved by me and I would encourage you to check out those companies. All right, everybody. That's it for today. No, it's not. We got a whole episode to go. Let's give it up for Jamie Pendleton and bring her on the show now. Jamie, we are finally connecting. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, okay. I feel like I've known you forever, but the really funny thing is we've never hung out. Well, I actually have a funny story about that because my first job out of college was working for the United States Anti-Doping Agency. So I think that I met you when you guys lived in Lyons because I think you had a surprise drug test and I think I went um, to your house to collect urine from you when you were racing professionally. Wait, you have <laughs> seen my urine and I didn't I even know? <laughs> I don't think I actually did the test. I think it was like right when I had um, maybe just started working for USADA and I had to go do an out of competition test. I could have sworn it was you. You guys lived in Lyons at one point, right? Yes. And we did yeah. have um, surprise testing, which was really always quite a comedy of errors. Like <laughs> someone would show up and you just peed. <laughs> And you're like, oh, now we have to wait three hours and you have to hang out hang out with that person. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, that what's funny is I don't have any memory of this. Like, I actually don't have a lot of memories from before my daughter was born. Like everything that happened before in my life, like just got pushed to the side and my brain was taken over by this whole other being, which is actually the reason that we're talking today is, you know, the, the beauty and challenges and and sadnesses sometimes of having children. But I love that we started um, by bonding intimately over pee. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that was it. I think that's the first time I met you. You know, also, um, you know, you, you might've met, we might've met then just one time briefly in a transactional (laughs) situation, (laughs) but, um, really you came to know the Debooms through my husband, Tim. Yes, that's correct. So why don't you share a little bit about that story? Because it's going to give some insights into, uh, another part of your life, you know, ambitions, your athletic side. Certainly. And so I was trying to think of the timeline in this. I think it was actually 2016. So I think at the time my daughter Mirren might have been two, I decided that I wanted to get back into running. And um, I decided to sign up for the Colorado Marathon. It's a race in May. And that year it was just bitter, bitterly cold. It was kind of like raining and sleeting during the whole race. And I had just put together kind of a little training program myself to kind of see what I could do. And I wanted to try to run fast. Um, and I ended up running a 311. Um, and I got third at the Colorado Marathon, which was exciting for me, especially as a new mom to be like running again. Because um, I think some, sometimes moms have this unfortunate um, thing that occurs where they sort of lose their identities after giving birth to kids, they become moms. And I definitely didn't want to do that. I wanted to preserve something that was genuinely a part of myself. And so I did that race and felt pretty good about it and then was sort of determined to start actually training with someone who knew something about, you know, putting together um, coaching programs. And I have a twin sister who was living in North Boulder at the time, and she um, lived next door to Matt Steinmetz. And she mentioned to him that I was looking for someone to help train me. And he's like, oh, well, I could put her with Tim DeBoom. And uh, I was kind of like, well, I think Tim might be a little bit too too big of a coach for someone like me. Um, but in the first call I had with Tim, I just remember him saying, you know, 311 is pretty good for someone who hasn't, you know, been trained by someone and I'd be happy to write you a program. And um, then I just started working with Tim and um, through his help the following year, I was actually top 100 at the New York City Marathon. Um, I ran a 305. Tim had definitely trained me to break three hours, but um, I went out way too quickly um, and ended up falling apart about mile 18. Um, but I just, I absolutely love running. And I think that running is really the thing that has gotten me through the last six and a half years, um, with, uh, the child that I have been given. Oh my gosh. Okay. Jamie, I'm, I've been laughing on the other side of the mic here, trying to muffle it because Tim and I talked before your interview and he's like, Hey, you got to ask her about how she really could have broken three hours if she would have just paced <laughs> the way I trained her. So, Tim and I actually had a conversation before the race. And I always, before I race, I always get this like impending sense of doom where I feel like I just didn't do enough to train. And he was like, you know, Jamie, I trained you to break three hours. You're going to be fine. You just have to pace yourself appropriately. And so, the plan, I mean, I got really lucky with my 311 start time. I actually got the first crowd behind the pros. And so we got our own, you know, bathroom area and all this like really cool stuff that came along with it. And so I was just like, you know, I just have to run 640s. If I run 640s, I'm going to bank some time. It's going to be easy. And Tim is, you know, a huge advocate of running negative splits. So just run the second half better than the first, start out super slow. And so, um, you know, at New York, there are just so many bridges. And so for the, the first mile, I looked down at my watch and I had run a 740. 
And I got totally freaked out because I was a minute over where I should have been. So then my second mile was actually a 542, which, I mean, I'm sure you're capable of running a lot of 542s, but I'm not. So by the time I got to mile 18, I really didn't think I was going to finish. So, um, yeah, it was pretty funny. Tim definitely gave me crap after that. If I had listened to him, I would have broken three hours. Um, yeah, there's definitely something very painful about positive splitting in such a huge way. (laughs) I will tell you, I actually have a very funny New York city marathon story myself. Um, and I ran it in maybe 2006 or something. And I had worked the skirt sports expo booth all weekend. I just started my company and I didn't, I was like, wait, what time's the race start? Like I was totally not, you know, usually when you're (laughs) preparing for a race like that, you're like dialed in, you know, where you have to be and all that. But anyway, I show up and I'm like, I was also in a very, uh, nice wave, like up towards the front. And I remember feeling so good when I went out, I literally ran under a six minute mile too. And that is my best marathon was like three twenty or something or three thirty. So like that was way out of, you know, out of the range for me. And I ran my first half in like one twenty eight or something. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to break three hours. All I have to do is like double this and add a few minutes. I bonked so (laughs) at the end. I ended up running a 323 or something like that. So I ran 30 minutes slower on the second half than the first half. And I remember running down the last like quarter mile and I was crying in pain. I was like, <laughs> like the weeping, the people in the crowds were like, what's wrong with her? Like they're all cheering. I'm crying so hard. I mean, it definitely, I feel your pain. I hope it wasn't quite as painful as that, but, um, Tim DeBoom was not quite very impressed with that performance either. So you're not alone. I hope he gave you some crap for that too. <laughs> he did. You he weren't did. spared. <laughs> you gotta love it. You know, I think one of the big things just in telling these stories is that sports teaches us so much. It's like, it's part of when, when sports or, or a certain sport like running is part of who you are, you carry that with you. And you said something earlier that I just want to come back to and repeat. You said, I wanted, you know, when we have children, we lose our identities in some ways and we become moms. And I wanted to pre- preserve something that was genuinely part of myself. And that mm-hmm. was running your identity yeah. as a runner. And so running can be a lifeline. It can give us goals. It can be therapy. It can be all those things. And through the act of it, we learn how to suffer and we learn the joy of success. You know, we learn so much. So I don't know what's your take on that. What have you learned or what do you use running for in your life still today? Oh, so running, I mean, I think I definitely have a very high pain tolerance. And so I sort of have this love hate relationship with running where it just makes me feel so good, but it's just so hard at times. And I think that I have this ability to just suffer through things. And that's why racing has always appealed to me is to really just push um, past the limits of my body and kind of get into my mind and dig deep and go big. And um, after, you know, we'll talk about kind of the story with my daughter, but 
I actually got a tattoo on my foot. And the reason why I got it on my foot was because I looked at the guy and said, well, what's the most painful part of your body to get tattooed? And he said, it's definitely your foot or one of your ribs. And I said, okay, I want to do it. If I'm going to get a tattoo, I want it to be my foot. And the tattoo, um, my mom's family is Spanish Basque and my daughter's name, Mirren, is um, it's Basque for Marie. So she's named after my mom. Um, but I literally have two Basque words tattooed on my foot and it's um, literally suffering and then the word for beauty. And it's this idea that you can really only experience true beauty once you've kind of been on the other side of suffering. And so it's just really kind of that idea of like light and darkness and about how, you know, we've been given free will and we have to kind of experience some of these horrible things in order to experience the wonderful, beautiful things in life. But sometimes it's kind of hard to get through that. Um, and so I think running is sort of a metaphor for life and, um, you know, the difficulties and challenges that you face actually just make you more beautiful and well-rounded and through my experience with my daughter, I've definitely been exposed to a community that I never would have had access to. And those people have really just taught me a lot about life and um, living and community and kind of being connected to people, um, especially through suffering and struggling. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, you know, you break down the act of whatever sport you do and there's a lot of different elements and, and suffering and discipline the discipline of sticking through it, mm -hmm. hanging in there, never giving up, even when it freaking hurts. That's one of those lessons that can carry you through a lot of things. You know, as a, a as a businesswoman, I realized early on that the athletes I hired were just such a better fit for my company and for my mm -hmm. style. And part of it was, I think they knew that you have to go through some of that suffering to achieve the bigger lofty goals on the other side. Yep. I totally agree. So, so with, okay. So we talked a little bit about how, how you came to meet Tim. Um, you know, you're running, you're running background. Did, actually, when, when did your running begin in your life? So I've always loved running. Um, I grew up in a little tiny town in New Hampshire and my dad was a long distance runner. And so on weekends, he would go out for, you know, 10 to 15 mile runs. And so I always kind of had this fascination with it. And growing up, I just remember I was probably like nine or 10 years old. We had this little loop around our house that we called the dingle. And it was like a half mile loop. And I remember I was like, today I'm going to run two laps around this to make, you know, for a full mile. And at that time I had seen Iron Man on TV and I was like, someday I'm going to do that. I'm going to be an Iron Man. And I just think that, um, I don't know, that experience was just really formative because I have always kind of pursued these athletic goals. And it's funny, I, I was a lacrosse player in high school and then I herniated a disc in my back. So I didn't end up playing in college, but my twin sister did. And she went on to be an all American, um, at Colorado college. So D three, but, um, I, I kind of got away from organized sport and then in fast, you know, preoccupied with my weight and trying to figure out how to lose weight. And so I think that's kind of when I started picking up running again. And my senior year of college, I actually got just a spot into the Boston Marathon. And so that's the first time that I ran, um, you know, super long, and it wasn't anything impressive. I think I ran like a 402. Um, 
but it was just kind of cool to accomplish that goal. And then I got really into cycling after graduating from college. And then at the age of 30, I did an Ironman and then just kind of realized that running was kind of my thing, just mostly because it was so efficient. And I felt like um, the more effort that I put into it, kind of the better I got. And so it just kind of inspired me to kind of keep going. Um, so then I, I started doing some long distance running after 30. And then I had my daughter at 34 and then kind of got back into it at 36. Oh, wow. Okay. So cool, cool ebb and flow here. You know, <laughs> it's not like it, this was a sport that was consistent your whole life, but you have been an athlete for a very long time. And this is what kept calling to you. Yeah. And, you know, I've never been good. My twin sister was always really good at sports that involved hand eye coordination. And I've never really been good at like, if you were to see me throw a football, you would laugh. Um, I'm not good at golf. I can't do anything like that, but I can run forward really quickly in one direction. (laughs) That's my unique talent. You know, I, I can relate to that. I mean, not so quickly now, but, um, you know, what's cool is as athletes, we learn to really listen to ourselves and then find more confidence in, in, you know, uh, confirming or affirming the decisions, whatever they may be. Right. So you're like, okay, I've tried all this stuff. It's, it was cool, but it brought you on a path back to the thing that you originally were excited about. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because I remember in sixth grade, I was going to be on the cross country team. And then I decided to do it in field hockey And I was always kind of like, gosh, I should have stuck with cross country. Like I probably could have run in college. And then in talking to one of my best friends, Sam, she, she was a collegiate runner. And she's like, it's a good thing you didn't take it up until after college, because at this point you would be done running if you had spent your college years just running and training hard. You know, and that, that there's a lot of um, wisdom in that, I think too. There are certain sports where we get better as we get older, but mostly if you pick them up (laughs) older, then you can keep getting better. So I'm just curious too, when you were a nine, 10 year old girl and you watched an Ironman on TV, I actually had the exact same situation at the exact same (laughs) age. And the Ironman I watched had Julie Moss crawling to the finish line. It was like from the early eighties. Yes. I remember that legendary footage. Well, then I was like, well, wait, how young is Jamie? Did the Iron Man she watch include Tim and me? <laughs> I'm no, I'm, I'm 40. So I think it was like, I don't even remember specifically who was involved in it. I just remember watching it. Isn't that amazing? Like what goes through crazy people's heads like us where they're like, that I need to do so, that. <laughs> yeah. They're like, that looks horrible. I can't wait to do it. Yes. Um, Okay. So at some point here, you know, you mentioned this. So we, we followed along your journey of running and you had a baby. So at some point, did you also have a relationship that turned into a marriage or, or, you know, some, how did you end up having this immaculate (laughs) child? I um, actually met my ex-husband, whose name is Jason Pendleton in 2005. And, um, he and I are great co-parents now, but, um, I think, you know, this sort of happens a lot when you have a child with disabilities, um, you, the 
the divorce rate is over 50%. And so I think we just kind of fell into that lower 50% category that just couldn't sustain the marriage through kind of the, the sadness that both of us were feeling through our respective experiences of parenthood. So you guys were together for quite some time before you had a baby though. Yes, we were. Um, we had been together for five years before we got married in 2010. And then she was born um, four years after that. So we've been together for about nine years at the time that my daughter Miran was born. And I'm just, you can answer as much as you want of this, but I'm yeah. just really curious and nosy. And did <laughs> you, looking back, um, were there signs that the marriage wouldn't, wasn't going to make it, whether you had, you know, the issues you've had with Mirren or not? So, yeah, um, I think we have sort of a unique, our story is unique. He is actually um, a deputy fire chief with the city of Aurora. And um, he was from California. I was from the East Coast and we're very like East Coast, West Coast. We're kind of so different, um, but I think it worked for a while because we could sort of complement each other. Um, and he was just super easygoing and I've always been kind of type a kind of wired pretty tightly. Um, and then the year after we were married, um, he was actually one of the first due in on the theater shooting in Aurora. And, um, I think that fundamentally changed him that experience. Um, I think that he had PS. PTSD as a result of that. Um, but he maintains that that's not the case. Um, and it's just kind of interesting because firefighters do have to take psychological tests to kind of show that they have the ability to compartmentalize things, um, in order to even be able to do that kind of that line of work. Um, if you think about it, I have said to him multiple times, like you see people on the worst day of their lives and you see two to three people having the worst day of their lives time to go to work. And Obviously, you have to have some kind of protective mechanism that cripples you when you're exposed to the trauma um, over and over again, repeatedly, it starts to affect you. And so there really is such a thing as um, it's like psychologists and anyone who's exposed to other people's kind of like pain and suffering over time can develop symptoms. And so um, I think, you know, his kind of he sort of applied the same model of like, hey, if there's a problem, try to fix it um, to our daughter. And there was just really no way to just kind of fix it. And I think instead of us kind of reaching out to each other for emotional support, we both just kind of shut down and dealt with it in our ways. Um, and I think ultimately that's sort of, kind of you know, what caused the um, but it's pretty cool. I think we have a, a really special um, now. We both, we live literally around the corner from each other um, just because we do need extra help with my daughter. And um, we've been pretty, had some frank conversations um, with each other about things that we do differently in future relationships and consider them to be one of my best friends. That is a really powerful story. To be honest, I mean, we've all got our own love stories in our life and, you know, to come full circle after breaking up, which had to be incredibly painful um, and end in a positive place that you think is sustainable for the long term, that is really special. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you there? Cool. Yeah. yeah. I said he's actually off today. So he's teaching our daughter at his house, which is around the corner from mine. And um, I was like, you know, I've been on back-to-back conference calls today. I'll pick her up at like two 30. I just need to get in a half an hour run and I'll feel okay. And he texted me back and said, Hey, no worries. Don't, don't get her till three. So you can get in a proper run. So I think we, we still have respect for each other and that we both need to work out for our mental health. And we're kind of like willing to support each other for that reason. Like he has her tonight, but I'm going to take her for a couple hours so he can get a workout in. You know, I feel like you, when you can operate as a team where you have each other's backs, it is, it's the, you know, ultimate goal. Right. And when you get to that place of tension and resentment and maybe anger in a marriage, you do not have each other's backs anymore. You're you're jabbing at each other all the time. So I find that to be phenomenal and very necessary for what you guys Mm -hmm. are going through. Yes. So, so you decide to have a child and you had the beautiful and joyous and light bringing Mirren (laughs) about what, six and a half years ago. When was she born? Yes. She was born in February of 2014. What's her birthday? It is the 19th. Wow. That's really cool. That's my sister's birthday. And that's two days after mine. She is a, an Aquarius Pisces cusp. <laughs> She's got a what lot. What does of- that come with? You know, I, all I know is my sister and, um, she's going to have a lot of sides to her. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you, you know, you're a new mom and you're going through all the things that, that come with being a new mom. Um, at what point did you start to realize that things weren't quite right? Well, we actually, I realized that there was something really wrong right when she was born. Um, I ended up having, um, I was induced, she was five days late, and then I had um, an emergency C-section, and I just remember the doctor kind of held her head up above the drapes, and then said, she's like, here she is, and then she was whisked away, and I didn't actually get to see her for about six hours after she was born. Um, She went straight to the NICU. And then they brought her in to try to get me to breastfeed her. And she ended up turning blue. Um, They call it being dusky. And so she was once again brought back to the NICU. And so it was pretty obvious from the beginning that she had some breathing issues. She had something called strider where she made this kind of weird noise and didn't have the ability to coordinate sucking and swallowing. Um, And then I went to, you know, a lactation specialist and, tried to figure out how we could get her to latch on and she could never really latch on. And then she started losing weight and was deemed close to being failure to thrive. And so I actually just ended up pumping and bottle feeding for about nine months. Um, But the feedings were really challenging. So it would take almost an hour for her to drink just like three to five ounces of liquid. And then um, we later found out that because of her low muscle tone, she also wasn't able to keep liquids down. So a lot of times she would have like projectile vomiting and would just kind of lose the whole contents of her stomach. Oh, wow. Okay. So I think one of the things that comes to my mind is I have one child. So everything I've experienced has no comparison Mm -hmm. and you do too, right? Yes. So even 
for somebody whose child is a hundred percent normal, healthy range, every little thing seems like it could be an emergency room trip. Right. So I can only imagine that it had to have you really like second guessing yourself all the time or like, what did that, how did this, you know, situation manifest for you psychologically? Oof. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I still second guess myself. (laughs) There are times before it took us six and a half, six years to get a diagnosis. And so I think up until we received that diagnosis, I was constantly second guessing myself and just thinking, am I just a bad mom? Like, why is this, you know, why is she behind in all of these milestones? Uh, And yeah, it took me a little bit. The other kind that happened is that my twin sister ended up having a child nine months after Miran was born. And she also has a little girl um, named Monroe that we call her Roe. And so that was kind of, I mean, challenging in a way because I have a direct comparison about like what milestones kids should be hitting and which milestones my daughter wasn't hitting. And so her daughter was born nine months after Miran and Roe actually walked nine months before Miran was able to walk. Um, which has just been, it's been kind of tough. It's like this comparison and I have to back toward not pairing the two of them just because they've been different challenges. I mean, this is the, you know, the decade or, or the time in life when the comparison game has really come to light with social media. I mean, that is something we talk about all the time. It's like how inferior everybody feels because you're constantly comparing against these beautiful, unrealistic images that you're seeing out there. So, I mean, it had to be just magnified. Um, and did it make you resent your sister even and Roe? Yeah, I think she and I have had um, struggles. You know, I think she has felt, um, you know, in some ways that I- I've sort of ruined her experience of motherhood just because some of the struggles that I had to go through and we, you know, it's, it kind of repeatedly cut mothers of children who are developmentally um, delayed and experience something called recurrent grief. Different things will sort of trigger you to kind of experience grief all over again. Like it's just fraught with, um, you know, types of suffering that kind of occur. And we recently Thanksgiving and um, her daughter was actually teaching my boyfriend how to play chess. And her daughter literally just turned six. And um, it was just really hard for me. I mean, Mirren is, you know, six and a half and still has trouble speaking and communicating her needs. And so just the complexity of something like that made me sad because, I would go, I don't know if my child will ever be able to play chess, let alone at, you know, the age of six, doing something as complex as explaining it to someone else. Wow. Yeah, that's heavy. That's big stuff. I mean, you're, you're raising this beautiful girl. I mean, her photo is all over the show notes here. So you guys need to get on and check, check it out. We're going to have all kinds of ways that you can assist with Jamie's mission here that we're about to get to, but, um, were you, did you hit points where you were just like screaming and throwing shit against the walls? Like, yeah, 
Okay. I mean, I definitely have struggled through very like um, periods of depression um, and have struggled with anxiety the whole time throughout, um, you know, her life. Um, and I think one thing that has really helped me in the last six months, um, my twin sister is gay and she's married to a wonderful woman, Anna. They live in Boulder together. And uh, Nikki was like, you know, Jamie, the thing that has helped me through this experience was to create community around it. So she has tons of friends who are gay and they have kids. And so it could be different to other people doesn't seem different at all to her because she's part of this community. And so I had to kind of figure out how to access my own community within the rare disease um, community. And I was so fortunate to be introduced to um, my good friend, Morgan Swank, who actually lives in my neighborhood, who also has a child with a rare genetic disease. And we met about two and a half years ago and have just become fast friends. And she's a great resource to laugh about stuff, cry about stuff, and just completely understands what I'm going through. And then since then, um, I've met Julia Vitarello, who you and I spoke to, spoke about, but um, she was instrumental in getting a diagnosis for us. And then she introduced me to another woman in Boulder named Amy Hall, who's just absolutely amazing. She's another runner and a mom of a child with a rare disease. And um, it's just been so helpful to have those women in my life to kind of normalize my experience and make me feel like I'm not alone in this. I think that is very lucky and important. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that we do is we put a, we use the word perfect a lot, mm -hmm. you know, um, Wilder recently, reminded me that the only thing that is perfect is the word perfect. Nothing is perfect. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you're so wise. But like, you know, all of our children are perfect to us. And right. yet you're faced with the fact that there are some physical and maybe cognitive things going on that that are not under that sort of medical definition of perfect. And I wondered how how you handled that or what emotions you felt with that concept. Yeah. And I think, um, it's sort of interesting because, uh, my twin sister and I were 10 when my, my mom actually died of colon cancer when we were 10. And so I think both of us have sort of, um, <laughs> struggled at times, just motherhood in general. And I think us not being maybe the most like emotionally connected people, and so I think, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting too, because the other thing that you kind of reminded me about is this book by Brene Brown that's called The Gift of Imperfections. And she really just talks about how if we can talk about our differences and the things that, you know, make us different and being vulnerable with other people, it really does lead to this kind of powerful connection, but you have to be willing to be vulnerable. And I think, um, you know, like you were saying with social media and stuff, because I didn't have a child that was sort of following this normal growth development curve, I had really shied away from posting anything about Mirren on social media, because I think I had this sort of level of like shame kind of that I didn't have a normal kid and that I wasn't having a normal experience of motherhood. And so I really had to kind of get over that and become vulnerable and share things about Mirren and my personal life um, in order to start raising money for this cause that I've, you know, recently developed and um, 
you know, that's, that's been hard, but I think it's been really good to kind of put myself out there through social media. Well, how do you just get over it? How do you just say, I'm just going to not be, I'm going to be vulnerable now. Like, yeah. how do you go from <laughs> one step to the next? And I mean, I think it's definitely evolved over time. And I think too, that my desire to help my child and to find a cure for her sort of trumps the vulnerability that I don't want to feel. I think that if I can put myself out there on social media and ultimately my goal of 250,000 research and development of a drug that's specific for her disease, it will fit. And I think too, that it's going to give me the opportunity to connect with some women who have probably felt like I have before where they feel like they're standing on an island by themselves um, in a sea of people who are having these perfect experiences of motherhood. So if I can help other people through this experience, that would be beneficial for, for me and hopefully for them. I, I agree. And I think it's very brave and it's necessary. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just imagining you in the first few years after having your baby, you're your marriage is eroding. Your lifeline to another person who cares as much as you is, you know, deteriorating. You are so frustrated because you can't get a diagnosis. That's almost worse than knowing bad news is not knowing yes. any news. Yeah. And, um, and you're trying to hold yourself together, feeling shame, um, you know, feeling the tension with your relationship with your sister, even and guilt and all of that stuff. Um, yeah. and then at some point, six years in, you finally got an answer. How did yeah. that feel? What was it? And how did it, it was, feel? you know, it was so validating. Like so many people, including my sister had been like, just stop, just stop trying to find a diagnosis. Cause we had gone, I mean, we've literally been to 15 different departments at Children's. My daughter's had multiple surgeries. She's had multiple MRIs, eight-hour sleep studies. We've been in the hospital for an inpatient stay for five days for seizure monitoring. Um, people were just kind of like, you know, Jamie, enough is enough. Stop looking. And then um, I actually saw a news article about Julia Vitarello's um, daughter, Mila, who has Batten's disease and Julia's story is amazing. She was able to fast track a medication that's specific to her daughter through the FDA. And I reached out to her and um, within 24 hours, she had reached out to um, a geneticist and a neurologist at Children's Hospital who both called me back within a couple days. And we got into Children's and um, were able to get um, exome sequencing <laughs> approved by insurance. At first, two years before that, they had kind of mentioned exome sequencing, but it was going to be about $10,000. And I just didn't feel like it was worth spending $10,000 if we were going to find that it was something genetic and we couldn't do anything about it. So um, the genetic, the exome sequencing actually revealed that Mirren has something called CACNA1A. And it's a genetic mutation on chromosome 19 and to put it as simply as possible, it actually affects the influx of calcium going into her neuronal cells. So it's a, what they call a missense mutation. So half of the kids will have something called a gain of function mutation and the other half will have loss of function. So they're either not getting enough calcium or getting too much calcium. And the unique thing about this is that all of the kids have different um, symptoms, but they all include um, neurological symptoms like seizures, 
um, episodic ataxia where, where they'll just kind of fall over. And Mirren has congenital ataxia. She doesn't have episodic ataxia, but she's very just like uncoordinated. Her muscle tone is significantly compromised. She's severely hypotonic. And so she had, um, she had to be on reflux medication because the muscles in her throat, um, you know, didn't really work to kind of hold liquids down. She had to have a surgery on her larynx because even when she wasn't eating, her airway was partially obstructed just because her tone was so low that she couldn't appropriately kind of like open up the muscle to her airway. She had to be on um, medication for constipation because the muscles in her intestines weren't working correctly. Um, she had an eye that sort of wandered, which was related to muscle as well, but that has sort of fixed itself. Um, her tone has definitely improved a lot. Like I said earlier, she does have the ability to walk um, and she can talk, but um, there's just so much muscle involved too in your face and your throat produce sounds. And so that's um, part of the issue is the speech and language. Um, it's delayed and then she has significant cognitive impairments. Um, and yeah, so we, so we're kind of now on a quest to um, develop a cure from your end. And um, I, I guess I'm just grateful that we have the diagnosis. That was kind of like step one in the process. Well, I mean, definitely. I mean, you, you need, can you imagine if you still didn't know, like if you never knew and I mean, I know, and yeah, you know, the, I guess the other thing that I didn't reveal is that we learned that her mutation is de novo, which means that it just happens spontaneously. It's not the fault of, it's not my fault. It's not Jason's fault. Um, and I think that provided a lot of relief for me too, because I kept beating myself up thinking I had done something wrong. You know, I was like, I definitely ate way too many tuna fish sandwiches when I was pregnant. You know, yeah. and I've, I've since heard that this is kind of the process that mothers go through. Like they sort of blame themselves and they come up with these preposterous reasons why. So, well, and I, I, I can, I can imagine that is the case, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, we take on the burdens of the world. So when it's our own child, I mean, we are, we are to blame, but right. you're not to blame. And you are actually one mom who can make a big difference. One person can make a difference when they keep pushing. You know, this yeah. is such a rare disease. It's not like, oh, well, she has even something like cancer, something that you can detect right. easier because people know how to even run the tests for it. Like the doctors probably didn't even know what freaking tests to run. And here you come from a, you know, a medical pharmaceutical background, knowing that someone somewhere holds the key to this, but it's finding that person, that test, that um, doctor community that's open to you. It, that's the trick, isn't it? Yep, for sure. And I think that it's just, it's put us in a completely different category now that we have a diagnosis. Um, I think the interesting thing for me is just the, the fact that I have 15 years in the pharmaceutical industry and I have six and a half years experience as the mom with a child with a rare genetic disease. But I always say, you know, learning your kid has a genetic disease is sad, but then learning that no pharmaceutical companies actually have incentive to help you because the numbers are just so few is absolutely heartbreaking. 
And so what I've learned is that within the rare disease community, rare disease actually isn't that rare. Rare disease affects 10% of the population. So there's a good chance that anyone who's listening is either affected by rare disease themselves or someone in their family or peer group probably has a rare genetic disease. Um, and the only way that therapies or treatments will be developed for these patients is through parents or other advocates. And so um, that's actually what I'm doing now. Um, I'm trying to raise the first $250,000 for research and development. And it looks like there are some options that might be viable for Mirren. So the first thing that we're going to do is something called a pharmaceutical repurposing trial, where they actually create Mirren-specific genetic mutation, and then they run it through a database of um, over, I think there's like six 6,800 um, molecules that are FDA approved. And so they'll actually try to match her mutation to see if there's a hit for any medications that have run through clinical trials previously. And so the biggest example of pharmaceutical repurposing is actually the story of Viagra. So Viagra was actually created initially as a blood pressure medication. And then all of these men re reported um, you know, improvements in erectile dysfunction. And now that's what it's used for. So other examples of repurposing are, um, you know, a child with intractable seizures who they just could not get him controlled on any kind of medication. And they did the same pharmaceutical repurposing trial and found out that Prozac is a hit. So on high doses of Prozac, his seizures are completely controlled. So our hope is that that first step will reveal some kind of uh, medication that will affect the calcium channels um, for Mirren. You know, and it's, it's mind blowing to me that it really does fall on the private sector to make this stuff happen. You know, yeah. 250,000, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to anyone, but I know there is somebody out there who's, who is hearing this story and looking at a pile of cash and they're like, Hey, I wonder what I was going to do with that pile of cash this year. We have something you can do with it that can help not only one little beautiful girl, but many other many other people who suffer from rare and unexplained diseases. Um, and so we're definitely, there is a link in the show notes, but to give and donate to the cause, you go to rarevillage.org and it's a specialty um, donation site and you're going to click on Mirren's Marathon. Am I correct on all that? Yeah. So if you go onto rarevillage.org, there's actually a little button that you can click that says Our Village. And then you can scroll down and see all the families that Rare Village is helping. And ours right now, it's listed under Mirren's Marathon. And there's some used running shoes, the pictures of used running shoes that are hanging in my garage. And on top of those used running shoes are Mirren's first couple pairs of shoes because there was a time where I thought that she wouldn't actually be able to walk. So those little shoes are a reminder every time I pull into my garage of how far this little kid has come. And it's a reminder that anything is possible backed by wonderful science and faith and the power of people to give generously. Well, and I, I want to come back around to what you said earlier, which is about how we lose our identities when we have a kid and it ebbs and flows. And right now your mission is very focused around helping change your daughter's life and lifespan. And mm -hmm. um, are you able to maintain your identity through this? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I am trying to take time to run when I can. 
Um, I think that I'm kind of at the point too, where I'm trying to sort of make meaning of my story and the suffering that I've been through. Um, I actually just started reading a book and it's by the co-author of, um, with, with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who came up with the five stages of um, grief. And it's sort of this idea that there's a sixth stage and that it's that everyone can find meaning in their suffering. And so I think that in some ways I've been blessed with Mirren because I do have access to the pharmaceutical industry and I have the ability to kind of navigate working with doctors. Like there've been lots of times where doctors, you know, pushed back on me and I said, you know what, this isn't how it's gonna go. This is how it's gonna happen. And I need this and I need you to write this order for me. And then I think just being able to kind of talk the language and navigate, um, you know, I found a company that's willing to create a medication for Mirren, but I've had to learn a lot about genetics and about how genetic diseases work and what type of treatments are available. So I think that you can really make meaning through your experiences if you kind of look at your skill set and then kind of figure out what you can do to solve the problem, but then also figure out what you can do to help other people that are in similar situations. So I just want any listeners out there, if you have been blessed with a certain set of um, challenges that kind of seem like mine and you have a child with a rare genetic disease and you want to connect, please reach out to me because um, you know, this community is small and it can give you the support that you need to get through it. You know, let me ask you this and it, it's a tough question, but I really want to portray the urgency here. Mm-hmm. What if you cannot raise the money? What if you are not successful in finding a cure? What does that mean for Mirren? So we were informed by her neurologist um, a couple months ago that um, there's a possibility that she will develop something called cerebellar atrophy. And um, so far she's had two MRIs. She had one at one year old and then four years old and her brain actually looked better at four years old. Um, but puberty is the next kind of scary point for us where new neurotransmitters and hormones are going to be flooded into her system. And they have the potential to cause that cerebellar atrophy. It looks like if the kids live long enough, all of them will eventually have it. Um, but it could mean she'd lose her ability to walk and talk. Um, and there is the CACNA 1A foundation, which was developed last year, but they are going through traditional routes of research and development. So they are currently just in the process of doing a natural history study. And so using their timeline, it looks like a drug won't be developed for the next six to 10 years at best. Um, But I'm actually working with a company who's going to make a drug specifically for Mirren's mutation. And we're hoping that it will be created and developed within three years, um, which would make sure that she would have access to it before she hits puberty. Oh boy. Okay, guys pump some money in right now (laughs) because you're under the gun. I mean, you're under the gun. She will be going on 10. Like we got to get this done. Yeah. Um, What advice do you have for people out there? I mean, specifically, I guess moms, but anybody listening who, who has something big that they feel helpless about um, what advice do you have for them? I would say to just not give up the hope. Um, I have had periods throughout this ordeal where I have had suicidal thoughts and have had extreme bouts of depression. 
Um, but I've also have to say that there's something kind of beautiful that has come through all of this as well. And part of that, I would say, um, is my kind of reaffirmation in, um, you know, God and a power greater than myself. I feel like some people are afraid to use that term, but, you know, I feel like it could be called the power of the universe as well, if you're more comfortable with that. Um, but I just wanted to share one really interesting kind of wonderful story that had come out of this. Um, back in January, I read a book called Chasing My Cure, and it's about a physician who had an ultra rare disease called Castleman's. And there was no treatment at the time. And he kept getting really sick and ending up in the ICU. And so during periods of remission, he set out to find his own cure. And one of the things that he started with was pharmaceutical repurposing, which I mentioned earlier. And so um, I was just going to say one kind of event that showed me that something was sort of guiding me is that I got really interested in the idea of pharmaceutical repurposing. And I just started Googling it one day. And I found a PowerPoint that was written by Dr. Julie Blatt, who is a pediatric oncologist, hematologist at UNC Chapel Hill. And um, she's very interested in pharmaceutical repurposing for hemangiomas. And there have been multiple incidents of um, drugs that are FDA approved to work in cancer patients. And so I just figured I had nothing to lose. And so I went out on a limb and I found her email address and wrote her a lengthy email kind of pleading our case. And she became so interested in it that she is actually applying for a $40,000 grant that's due on December 14th. And is that she's going to be able to do a pharmaceutical repurposing trial specifically for Mirin and then include a couple other kids that have CACNA 1A. And interestingly enough, she actually works with two PhDs who specifically study calcium channels. And so they would be helping on this project as well. So I think that's just an example of, you know, not giving up the hope and continuing to pray and to ask for help. And um, I really do just think that there's something to the power of intention. And I think if you ask for help and if you pray and if you ask other people who have a belief, you'll start to see that things will turn around. Jamie, that is such a wonderful example of both letting go and pushing forward at the same time. All my prayers are coming to you right now. Thank you. Well, we have we have done just an awesome job today of getting your story out there. It's it's too important. People need to know it. Um, and as we wind down here, uh, I want to remind everybody listening that there are links in the show notes to ways that you can help donate to this cause because we can make a difference if we work together. The power of the universe coming together, right, Jamie? Yes. <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to leave our listeners with the final question I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is, if you can leave them with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help, help us run our worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? I would say to take, put yourself first, take care of yourself because you need to be the best version of yourself to take care of your kids or your family members around you. So stop looking at things like exercise as selfish. Look at it as a form of self-care that's actually going to empower you to do more within your community and your life and stay positive and reach out and connect to people during times um, when you're having a rough go. 
Beautifully said. Thank you so much, Jamie, for putting yourself out there, for stepping into your vulnerability. And um, we're going to make this change happen. We're going to do it. Thank you, Nicole. All right, everyone. I'm back. That was big. That was heavy. That was emotional. That was inspirational. Jamie, you are on a mission. I'm so grateful to know you. I am so happy to support you. Um, I don't know about everybody else here, but there are many, many different parts of this conversation that stuck with me. I thought, I don't know why, but this whole like conversation about the tattoo, you know, Jamie went in and said, what's the most painful part of your body to get a tattoo? Because she wanted to feel the pain because of this quote, you can only experience true beauty when you've been on the other side of suffering. That is a quote to remember. That's a quote to remember when you are in the thralls of suffering, that beauty will come. Beauty is there. It is right around the corner. You just have to persevere. You have to be resilient and you have to get through it. So everyone, in this most crazy holiday season we have had in a very long time, I hope you open your hearts to Jamie. Um, I know I have, and I hope you support her in some way. And if nothing else, please share this episode. It's too important. All right, everybody, make sure you get on my email list. Go to NicoleDeBoom.com. Check it out. Actually, I haven't asked you to do this in a long time, but I'm asking everything today write a freaking review for me on iTunes. How do I not have enough reviews? I know I've got thousands and thousands of listeners because I can see it in my stats. You guys listen to this stuff. So write me a review. Make sure it's five stars, please. (laughs) I actually can't um, like not accept them. So whatever you write, you write, just do it. And uh, reach out to me if you have any questions or you just want to connect. I'm Nicole at NicoleDeBoom.com. Like I said, more podcasts are coming in the future. I got some really cool ideas. My goal at the end of the day is to connect and celebrate you. That's it. That is what drives me in life and brings me joy. So I'm going to keep doing it. All right, everybody, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.